In recent years, financial crimes compliance has gone through an evolution. Long focused on traditional financial institutions, regulatory focus has turned to the fringes of the financial services industry, where new challenges and risks are emerging. This is KPMG Risk Factors, and we'll be discussing some of the new and interesting areas of financial crimes. This episode features KPMG Principal Edwidge Daco and Director Michael Wegg, who unpack the customer due diligence component focal areas of the AML Act of 2020 and their views on the key aspects of the Act and steps the company should consider for a seamless implementation of its requirements. Hello, everybody. My name is Edwidge Sacco. I am a principal in our financial crimes and analytics practice. And I am so pleased today to moderate the very first podcast of an exciting series that we are kicking off where we showcase the specialists on our financial crimes and analytics team. And in this first podcast of the series, we showcase Michael Wegg, a director in our financial crimes team with whom I have worked for many, many years. Michael, with that, I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what exactly makes you a specialist on our team. Thank you, Edwidge, for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Most importantly, I'm really excited to be part of the first of many podcasts that we'll be having, showcasing our people. I think, I mean, you know this, but I think we have some of the best people in the industry within our group, particularly my colleagues at the director level and otherwise. And I think this should be a really exciting series to be able to bring some of the things that we do on a daily basis to light. I know today I'll be speaking specifically about the AML Act of 2020 and some of the newer changes that have come down and the challenges that our clients are dealing with. At the same time, however, we do have really exciting series that are planned for the future, whether it's sports betting and AML or other topics uh, that are going to follow shortly. But I'm also interested to hear about who you are outside of work. Okay, nobody, I, I will say nobody tends to ask me that question <laughs> often. So who who I am as a person, I, I live in Long Island, um, have a wonderful wife, Dina, who's probably mortified as she's listening to this, if she, if she even is. I have two awesome boys, seven and four years old, um, Noah and Ben, who I'm actually surprised are not walking into this room as we're recording. So hopefully as you're listening to this, they won't throughout the recording, but that's kind of who I am. I've always envisioned having a podcast. My visions have been limited towards sports, so I, I did think I would make it to ESPN one day. I guess this is the closest I'm going to get, <laughs> speaking about <laughs> crimes. But I'm so grateful so for that. We'll, we'll try to make this interesting. It's not going to be an ESPN podcast, both which is sad both for the listeners and for me. So, but fantastic I'm looking forward for to me. speaking with you. So thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, hopefully, let's see how this podcast goes first. Well, thank you, Michael, for that um, elaborate introduction. You mentioned briefly the topic of the day, the AML Act of 2020, and I do want to specify for listeners who may not um, be in this field really that we refer um, to the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. But, Michael, before we go too far on this topic, and the challenge today, I think, partially is to make this real exciting, so no pressure. But before, before we go into that, what exactly is the AML Act of 2020? 
And, you know, maybe could you give us a, a quick recap of what it covers? So the AM elective 2020 is probably the largest piece of legislation that, we'd, that we've had since the USA Patriot Act, which governs most of what we do within the money laundering field. It was enacted January 1st, 2021. So, so what the AML Act of 2020 did, what it did is it established different priorities from the administration and have pl placed responsibility on the Secretary of Treasury to implement various regulations related to the AML field. Now, there has been a lot spoken about around the beginning, or what I should say are the first few months of this act versus what is currently taking place. If we were having this conversation six months ago, I think it would be a lot more difficult conversation to have because they really all the onus wasn't really on the banks and our clients. I think there was a waiting period in place where our clients were trying to understand what it was that the AML Act actually was going to do. Now, however, there's been a focus from the current administration and the Treasury to go ahead and actually implement and put forth effective regulation, which I think is starting to bring the AML Act to life. So when you ask, what does the AML Act do? Well, it puts a lot of responsibility upon the government to create different, different avenues for enhancing, I would say, the AML field. What it's done practically is only begin to bring out some of these things to life. So when we speak about beneficial ownership registry, which I think created the most noise at the initial outset of this, when we speak about information sharing, some of the innovation support, those are the things that are beginning to come to life today. But the AML Act of 2020, when we look back, and even maybe when people are listening to this conversation, it changes over the weeks, over the months, and what this will look like in five years, I don't know 100%, but it won't look like it does today. Okay, so we've briefly discussed the AML Act, but I thought I saw something in the news recently from FinCEN. Is there something a bit more recent that we should tell the listeners about? Yes, uh, yes, Edwidge. So if I could be completely honest with our listeners, we actually recorded a session of this podcast prior to the guidance, and then the guidance was released after discussing much of what is still expected um, with the AML Act of 2020. So much to our surprise, the night we actually finalized recording was when all this guidance came out. So yes, Edwidge, there's a lot of information that actually came out. On December 7th, FinCEN issued a notice of proposed rulemaking, and much of what has been, I guess, more forward-looking over the last year or so since the act has been put into place has now become a little bit more concrete in the sense that they've implemented what they call their beneficial ownership information reporting provisions. That's as part of the Corporate Transparency Act within the AML Act. And what that does is it will now require companies outside of certain exceptions, both domestic and foreign, if the foreign company is doing business within the U.S., to report beneficial ownership information to this, I guess, what we'll, cause, what we'll call repository for now, but housed by FinCEN. And those reporting companies, like I said, they could either be domestic or foreign, and they would be typically what we would associate with kind of regular corporations that file with the state secretary, LLCs, LLPs, regular companies. There are 23 exceptions that are 
put forth within the notice of proposed rulemaking as far as the companies that don't need to report. That may extend a little bit, but currently this is within the, I guess what we'll call the NPRM, which is the acronym for notice of proposed rulemaking. They do not expect currently for that extension to take place. So all that beneficial ownership information is now going to be reported to FinCEN. That is, uh, A, brings the U.S., I guess, a little bit in line with some of our global counterparts. And then also, this will prevent entities from being able to access the U.S. financial system and potentially contribute to the illicit movement of money where we now will know hopefully who the controlling parties are, who the beneficial owners are, who the individual is that's filing the applications with the state or the equivalent um, within the reporting company. So that just came down last week. There's a lot there uh, within there. I guess, Edwidge, anything you want me to add to that specifically that you'd like me to to hone in on, on, on additional information that would be beneficial to our listeners? No, I mean, I think what what would be helpful, though, is, you know, you mentioned that this beneficial ownership um, information, I guess we'll call it information gathering exercise, is going to impact both domestic and foreign companies in terms of who has to provide it, right? Who has to report that information? But in terms of then who has to comply with the requirements, right? The AML Act is one thing This now new, we'll call this recent NPRM, um, what what types of institutions are actually impacted now, in addition to the ones who have to report that beneficial ownership information? I mean, is it banks? Is it more than banks? I think it might it would be helpful just to give the listeners a sense of, you know, who who is now going to have to do something with this information and, you know, prepare for it, essentially. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh... I guess the answer the answer to that is really it's going to affect nearly all types of companies. I, w- I wish I had a better answer to say, okay, let's focus in on the financial institutions because it will affect them. Now, if you had asked me this two to three weeks ago around who this beneficial ownership repository would affect, I would say, okay, it will affect definitely financial institutions who are going to need to update some of the information that they have on file, but it also puts a onus on the actual reporting companies. Now, as far as who who these entities are that are exempt, we, we need to think about it as really it applies to everyone. Every type of company will be affected. But examples would include entities that are subject to federal or state regulation, which would include a lot of banks, securities issuers, institutional holding companies, insurance companies. So, yes, Michael, I think what would be helpful is to to provide more perspective on who's really impacted here, right? So we we talk about banks having to comply with various requirements, but this has an impact on businesses, right? Companies, domestic, otherwise. Tell us a little bit more about that and and who's really in the mix here, who's going to need to do something with this new requirement. It really impacts all companies located within the U.S. and even foreign ones doing business within the U.S., that don't sit within that very specific exception requirement. And there are 23 types of entities that would be exempt, but this is a, a broad, I guess a broad initiative, if that's what we're going to call it. And really companies that have not had exposure to, I guess what we would 
call the customer due diligence aspect of of a business will now be exposed to this where they need to have this information available to them. They're going to need to do an analysis as far as A, who owns it, which is usually the maybe more so the easier the easier aspect if they're doing it within the company if they're reporting but also who exactly maintains control which is one of the elements that is spoken to a lot within the notice of proposed rulemaking and the definition of what that means as far as who is the controlling owner or who is a controlling person such that that individual needs to be reported to FinCEN that is a little bit up for debate right now and the definition of that is all encompassing and i assume as part of the comment period will will have to be addressed a little bit but the impact of this is is far reaching and doesn't just affect our financial institution clients but really affects all types of companies outside of those 23 very specific exemptions for now for folks who are not really you know, in the financial crimes compliance or the anti-money laundering field or thinking about these things uh, day to day like like we do, and, you know, and, and they were to say to you, like, what is the point of this? Why are we doing this? Seems like a lot of work. It impacts a lot of companies. It'll impact a lot of people within those companies. Like, what is the spirit of this? What, what's the ultimate objective that we're trying to accomplish here or that FinCEN is trying to, to accomplish in deploying these kinds of requirements? So... It's a great question. It, it really is to curb illicit finance. I would say that the U.S., again, in comparison to some of our global counterparts, have been a little bit behind this, where other countries have this information available to them. And the worry, especially within this administration, is basically that you, the U.S., given that, given that we don't necessarily have the transparency behind legal entities, our financial system may be currently used, actually, to to facilitate some of that illicit activity just by virtue of the fact that individuals are sitting behind this more opaque structure where they don't need to report who exactly it is that's a beneficial owner. And so the U.S. may be a little bit late to the party, again, but definitely a focus of this administration in order to curb this illicit finance or have dark money kind of be part of the U.S. financial system, they are, and they've made it a, a tremendous priority just by virtue of the implementation of the AML Act, this Corporate Transparency Act, like I said before, and then also there will be other elements coming down. Um, one of the more recent ones, just as an aside, has been the reporting of cash transactions for real estate, which is another, another area where there may not be as much transparency. The administration, the Treasury Department, is making a tremendous effort to try is trying to build a very transparent financial system by peeling back the layers of who it is that's involved behind some of these legal entities. And and I think the understanding is, is in most instances, there are perfectly legitimate legal entities housed or owned, controlled by individuals who are not at all engaged in the list of finance. It's just for those bad actors that may be behind some of these legal entities, it's important for us to find out and, and really get us up to par with some of our global counterparts. It's, it's been a focus of other regulators as well. FATF, I know in the UK, EU, for example, they've all made strides. Um, FATF, more guidance uh, than anything. But, but the EU, UK, other countries are starting to embrace this more transparent, transparent information behind legal entities. Yeah, so basically the intent, the intent of it all 
at a very high level um, and not to oversimplify, but it, I mean, it's, it's what we're really trying to, to help, help the, the financial system, right. Help more, more so secure it, I guess, safeguard it more closely from activities or illicit actors or really, I guess what I like to say, you know, bad people doing bad things is, you know, the best way to describe what we're trying to get at here and, and then moving their money and the, the, the proceeds of these activities through the U S financial system. And obviously the intent ultimately is for them not to have access to any financial system. Right. But the focus here is, is on the U S. Um, so, Michael, we've talked about at a high level, like what this is, who it applies to. Can you help us a little bit? You know, let's think through where where does it stand today? So we're about what a year a year out from the AML Act, right? It's been almost a year at the stage. Right. We now have this new the this this new MPRM on the table. Have we seen, with the exception of this latest update, right, have we seen any meaningful movement in any of the provis- provisions, any aspects of the AML Act? Um, where we've seen some progress in the last year? I feel we have. Again, it's interesting because if you had asked me this question, let's just say three to six months ago, I would say the answer is probably no, more forward-looking, idealistic, which really when the AML Act came out at the beginning of last – well, I guess it's at the beginning of 2021, so in January, there was a lot that was put on the Treasury Department – functions within the Treasury Department to go ahead and promulgate some of this, and now we're really starting to see – more so not even guidance but concrete actions that either companies or financial institutions need to begin taking and so areas where i think we've seen meaningful movement um, these are ones that particularly think speak with our clients too the the Biden administration put out their fincen or i should say fincen rather put out their priorities in june of 2021 one of which was cyber and ransomware cyber crimes and i feel like this has been somewhat of a cultural shift where in the past we wouldn't have looked at cyber crimes within our traditional financial crimes suite right we know i think that typically we've thought of financial crimes as very aml and sanctions focused whereas cyber was something that i guess we viewed as sitting apart from aml and sanctions but given the focus of the administration the focus of fincen in combating cybercrime, particularly over COVID and its increasing use of ransomware crimes, cybercrimes, this has been something that our clients have been focusing on in trying to marry up their, I guess what we would call their traditional financial crimes function, so the AML sanctions with the cyber piece. So we've had a ton of meaningful movement there just culturally things have changed. And then the other the other parts are, like I said before, there's the recent guidance as of last week on real estate transactions and the reporting of certain information for real estate cash transactions. There's a focus from the administration on environmental crimes and what that means for financial crimes compliance, where if a financial institution becomes aware of environmental crimes that are being facilitated through its bank, through um, their internal system, they would need to report certain and specific information within suspicious activity reporting. So there has been a lot of meaningful movement. I guess retrospectively now, looking on it a year later, within the six months, there's definitely been an uptick in activity. We're expecting two more rules actually as part of this Corporate Transparency Act, one being a 
how this information will actually be housed and who will have access to it, which is going to be incredibly important for our financial institution clients. Obviously, for the clients who are also filing, probably of utmost concern is exactly who will be having access to this information and what safeguards will be in place. And then the last part of that is we also expect another rule as part of the Corporate Transparency Act where there will be some updates to the CDD rule and what beneficial ownership means there. And so though this is a massive shift in the responsibilities not only of, of financial institutions but companies generally, there still is more to be expected. And it's it's really up to our clients to begin preparing for this, A, by understanding the notice of proposed rulemaking, and then B, trying to understand if there are any gaps within their internal systems, remediating those now and trying to better understand, okay, so in this future state, and obviously there's still the great unknown of what this is going to look like, which will be part of the second, the second drop uh, of the Corporate Transparency Act notice of proposed rulemaking, there still needs to be an effort on the part of our clients to understand and see where there may be gaps within their own control environment. If we had to pick or if you had to pick one very concrete step that our listeners could take, say in, I don't know, January 2022, (laughs) right after the new year, um, they shift, if they haven't already, their attention to this. I mean, what's the one thing they can reasonably do and, and should absolutely be doing um, to get ahead of some of this? So the first step is understanding this. And I will say it's taken me a great deal to understand this rule and to look through it and to understand the nuances and what exactly this means, again, not only for our financial institutional clients, but also for regular reporting companies and what this means. I would say first step, designate a point of contact to be on top of these updates, understand the rules and regulations, and then gap against your program to see what areas, if any, will need enhancement. And typically, this will sit within the technology part of it. So as an example, the definition of substantial control within the proposed rule is a little bit more broad than how we've understood substantial control in the past. And one of those parts of what exhibits substantial control is the individual can affect the direction, determination, or decision of, or maintain a substantial influence over important matters of the reporting company. What constitutes important matters? What is considered substantial influence? I think all that is still to be determined. I imagine that it will be again, clarified within the comment period, which ends on February 7th, which isn't a a huge comment period. It's 60 days from the time it was released. So February 7th, given the holidays, you have about a month and a half till the comment period is over. And so if, for example, within a customer, the amount of controlling owners increases because of this, because there are many individuals who are able to have substantial influence over important matters and and what that means, are banks equipped to A, add those controlling owners within their beneficial ownership repository? Does that information screen to where it needs to be screened within their internal systems, whether it's sanction screening or other screening mechanisms that you have in place, negative news? We saw subsequent to the CDD rule that 
while the businesses were prepared, the technology function lagged behind at certain institutions. And so I think as a step one, you definitely want to be able to understand this. You want to have a designated point of contact to be able to follow these updates because it definitely sounds that more it definitely sounds like more is coming down the pipeline. And then more importantly, see where see where you believe it will affect you and then remediate those gaps if you feel like it will affect how you will comply or can comply with the regulation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing as a, I guess what I might call it a tactical step here is can your systems, whatever those are, right, can your technology support the incremental information that you might need to not only collect but then digest, right, or ingest through the system, through screening, through reviews, and so forth to comply with what is likely a broader definition or scope of of certain elements of this of this guidance than we originally anticipated, which I think is probably true for almost any sort of you know new or expanded regulatory requirement. The technology component is, I, I feel like, and I agree with you, always always one of the biggest challenges from an execution standpoint. So, well, Michael. Uh, I hope the the listeners found this very helpful. I have to admit that I myself uh, can appreciate how much is involved here and how little um, I I understand even myself at this point of of the latest and greatest from FinCEN. So I have some reading to do myself. I'd like to thank you for your time today. I'd like to thank the listeners uh, for checking in with us. Hopefully you found this information helpful. Michael's contact information is available um, and, and is attached to this podcast. We hope you'll join us again in the future. And cheers to everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of KPMG's Risk Factors. Be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes. And for more information on our financial crimes and analytics services, go to the URL listed in the episode description.